wait till it's all quiet. Um, today, as usual, we've got two readings. Um, we've got one from the Old Testament, from two kings, and then we're going to read from John's Gospel. So I'll start with the Old Testament. Now let's play a game while I read this. If I mispronounce something, feel free to sing out with the correct pronunciation because there's a few doozies in here. So we're reading from 2 Kings, chapter 21, verses 19 to 26. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamith, daughter of Haraz of Jotbar. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. The servants of Amon conspired against him and killed the king in his house. The people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Amon, and the people of the land made his son Josiah king in place of him. Now the rest of the acts of Amon that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? He was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Josiah succeeded him. Now we're going to move to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. So we're reading about feeding the 5,000. What verse am I starting? One, okay, good. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and he saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place, so that sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to cry, saying, This is indeed the prophet who, has, who is come into the world. When Jesus realised that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. For the word of the Lord. So what do you do with a story you have heard 100 times before? You know it like the back of your hand. It's from every one of the Gospels. You've led Sunday Club on this about 12 times probably in your life. You've received from your kids every conceivable craft that can possibly be done about this story. And what do you do when you know this story so well? Because only, what was it, four weeks ago, Karen preached on the end of this story, which is all about what it means and what it's all really about. Of course, you read it and you think to yourself, oh, I know this one. I know about Jesus providing, about offering Jesus the the little I have. I know about uh, there being some left over, and there's always enough for God's people to go on. I know that they tried to make Jesus king by force, and that isn't right. I know this one. But you know what we don't know about this story? We don't know what it's like. I mean, what it was like for this crowd to happen to them. Between us and them, there are huge differences, at least three big differences that help us appreciate the unlikeness. And the first is food. Everyone here has been to Coles or Woolworths, probably at least once in your life, right? There is so little food that you cannot buy. Food for us is this big category And in that category are more things than we are able to list and to name. But for this ancient people in farming subsistence Galilee, food doesn't mean aisles and aisles of bottles and tins and cans of food and and all year round fresh produce constantly available. For this people, food means bread and the things that go with bread. There's no supermarket on every corner. You know, I can't remember the last time that I missed a meal because I wasn't able to get one. And I can probably count on my hands the number of times that ever happened to me. But in Jesus' time, people often missed meals because of poverty or travel. And their meals were smaller, less nutritious, a lot less varied. Food was not secure, wasn't always available, wasn't as abundant for us. And so that means we don't know what this story is like to happen to us. But the second big difference between us and them is health and sickness. In verse 2, the crowds follow after Jesus because they saw the signs, read miracles, that Jesus was doing for the sick. Sickness had a much lower bar and far worse consequences for them than what we know. So they follow this Jesus who makes paralytics walk. People in Jesus' time loved magic like we loved science. Maybe that was all they thought it was. But for the same reason, because people were desperate to solve this unsolvable problem of having a body that breaks down. Now, we know sickness, I'm not dismissing that, but we also know health care, which is a meaningless concept for this crowd. You know, we're shocked by serious consequences of illness in our family and friends, and it hurts. But they only knew 
consequences to illness, with almost nothing to be done at every instance. And so we don't know what this was like for them. And the third difference between us and them is invasion. You know, after colonisation, Australia has never been invaded, occupied by foreign forces. And we also have a very little sense of shared national identity and shared national vision. But for this crowd, well, they, they did have that. You know, the Roman forces in Israel at the time killed Jews for practising their faith on occasion. Israel had a clear vision for what counted as the best of times, but when they looked around, they knew this was the worst of times. When we have these, just these three factors in our sights, we begin to understand why these crowds wander after Jesus, why they go where there can't be food to be got, and why they go with this risk where, you know, a broken leg could be the end of you. And the Roman occupiers could see this and form very much the wrong impression. We get a sense for why this crowd followed Jesus. And it's because life is desperate. It's precarious. And it was no less sad or hard for them just because it was common. A man who makes paralytics walk, well, that is a man worth chasing after. And it also helps us understand why after they have witnessed this miracle of feeding, which John calls a sign, why they, verse 15, were about to come, well, there we go, were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now, I know that's odd, but we begin to get it, don't we, when we see how fragile everything is for these crowds. I mean, who wouldn't be excited? A man who could feed us in the wilderness, who can heal the paralyzed, who exercises our demons and speaks about light and life. Well, the average Galilean thinks to themselves, I know hunger, I know frailty, I know need. Help me, O oh Rabbi, help me, Saviour. And maybe they have something in their minds, or rather their history, which might make them think that this is the best move for them to make. Yeah? In 2 Kings we read earlier, this event from the Old Testament was told to us where one king is conspired against and is killed and the people try to fix this kingship problem by restoring that line of kings. Now, as it turned out, this new king, Josiah, he's going to be the high watermark of kings after King David. It's kind of like a, I don't know, imagine just a theoretical parliament in some theoretical land, let's call it England, that decide that a new leader is in order because the old one is clearly not doing a good enough job. When Jesus realised that they were about to come and take him by force to be king, he withdrew. It seems like this crowd had in mind to do what their ancestors did in making Josiah king. They wanted a change. And at this period in history, this is, this is the height of the Roman Empire. They rule the world. And Israel hates this. And not just like anyone would hate foreign occupation, but because it exactly cuts down their religious hopes, their national identity, their very faith. Their problem's not comfort and economic, it's religious 
and social and governmental. Just like England, they seem to have had this intractable, this is the second week in a row, intractable economic problem. And to solve that, they pick the leader with the best economic credentials, right? Used to be a hedge fund manager or something like that. Surely he's best placed to solve our most pressing problem, the economy. So too, these crowd, they see their biggest problem as their Roman occupiers. And so they, they try to take Jesus by force and make him king. They hope to overcome Roman power with Jesus' power. But it isn't really Jesus' power, is it? Because Jesus here is just a means to other ends. It's more like Jesus' weaponry in human power. But Jesus is not to be wielded. He's not a weapon, not an instrument, not a magic wand or an idol to be bargained with. Jesus is not a means but an end. Jesus is free. Free to challenge us. Free to make demands on us. Free to call us and send us and hold us to an accounting. There's a great deal more to say about Philip and Andrew, the boy, the crowd, the story of Israel, but let's just deal with one thing here. Although we know this crowd is wrong to try to force Jesus to be king, we need, we need an empathetic read of that crowd. Then we can see that we're not so different. Because I've got needs. I've got frail flesh, health issues I can't control, constraints upon me that limit my freedom. And to turn to Jesus with these or any problems is right. Jesus doesn't rebuke this crowd because they were following after him because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. That's a good enough reason to follow Jesus. We know Jesus cares about hunger because he feeds the crowd. We know Jesus really does care about sickness because he heals the sick. We know Jesus cares about what it is to be occupied by these Romans because Jesus does preach and practice nonviolence. But when that crowd comes, they should not have imagined that Jesus was joining their cause. They should not have imagined that Jesus shared their politics, their time frames, their goals. Instead, they should have listened to Jesus and followed Jesus. They tried to get Jesus to follow them and be the weapon in their fight, the lead player, but in their own marching band. Jesus had not, Jesus has not come into the world to join a cause. Jesus has not come into your own life to do the things that you already find important. Jesus has come to change the whole game, to change absolutely everything. This crowd has real needs that Jesus does care about. But this crowd ends up committing a sin. They try to use Jesus for their own ends. They try to, or they do, remake Jesus in their own minds into something else. And that sin has a name. Blasphemy. Now it's easy to imagine how a church leader does that, isn't it? They end up using Jesus to serve their own ego and insecurities. I should stop gesturing to myself here. They make, they make Jesus a weapon of control over others. They talk a lot about leadership 
and not much about Jesus' gentle interactions with others. They go big on stories of commitment and endurance and they go soft on accountability and character. And to live like that is to be ready to reject Jesus when he calls us to confession and humility. But it's true for all of us. It happens to us in our political imaginations where Jesus can be posted up as the originator of my cause. You know, both left and right continue to try to grab Jesus and speak about Jesus in ways that, oddly, align very well with what the cause was before Jesus turned up on the scene. Jesus is made into a supporter of a movement or policy or cause, and and my opponents are suddenly the opponents of Jesus himself. But to do that is to be ready to reject Jesus when he calls us to anything that looks like the other side of the fence. It can happen for us when we think about money economically, where we find no conflict between Jesus' goodness and the message around us of economic success as goodness. Suddenly the message of Jesus' calls for prudence and doctrines of stewardship become really important, but the message of the danger of wealth and its threat to our discipleship It's just not admitted. And we can be ready to reject Jesus when he calls us to give up too much for others. And we can just do this in terms of all our life's expectations. You know, many people want to have a spouse and have kids and have a house and be healthy and enjoy their job. And we can make God into someone who we just believe wants all the things for us that we want. No, who says? Why would God want us to fit into our cultural lanes? Isn't God actually more interested in our holiness, our character, our sacrifices, our joys? And you know, we live in Melbourne. Melbourne is very good at this kind of bourgeois justice posturing. And we can fall into that era where we make Jesus an icon of bourgeois justice posturing. Make Jesus merely about justice on the terms already set by Australian politics and not anything more. Whether it's the cause that I think is most important, the desires I most deeply hold, or the people I most identify with, we can remake Jesus in our own minds as a means to other ends, who serves goals that I decide on. And that's what this crowd tries to do to commit blasphemy by making Jesus the instrument to their own ends and not the Lord who determines what is best for us. But here's the amazing thing. You wake up now because this is the interesting bit. What the crowd try to force Jesus to do and to be is not as good as who Jesus actually turns out to be. It is better to accept Jesus as this uncontrollable, disrupting force in your your life, and it is worse to try to fit Jesus into what I want to be. The crowd try to force Jesus to be the king so that he'll bring about this time of liberation. But Jesus actually turns out to be the king who ushers in an eternity of rest The crowd hope and try to force Jesus to be a a food truck who will sustain their generation through battles 
and travels. But Jesus turns out to be the bread of life, the drink of life, who satisfies a hunger within the soul and a thirst for everlasting happiness. The crowd want Jesus to be something that's just too small. And Jesus turns out to be, on his own terms, something better, something greater, something brighter than they ever dared to imagine. Better that Jesus is who he really is and not who I want him to be. The error to avoid is making Jesus in my own image, in the image of my expectations about life. Now, all your normal discipleship practices are going to help you with this. Right? If you're reading the Bible, you're forced to be confronted with Jesus regularly, so that's going to put the brakes on you reforging Jesus in your own image. Prayer for others will prevent you from an imagination that's dominated by your own desires. And serving others will prevent you from the pride that convinces us we're usually right. The thing to know today is that Jesus is offering us something better than we would come up with. The best utopia novels and movies you've ever watched are not as good a world as what Jesus holds out to us. Whenever we try to make Jesus into something else, it will always be smaller, not greater. So we enter into something that we must be attentive to for our whole lives of discipleship. We've not yet achieved all the character and vision that God has in store for us. We've not yet seen all the good that God has for us. We do. We glimpse it more and more when we accept Jesus as he is and try to hold that honestly before ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we give you thanks that you have spoken a good word to us. That you've come among us full of grace and truth to offer us life full and abundant and amazing life. And we pray that we would hold hope through all the petty signs of hope that the world holds up. And we pray that we might not lose sight of him who gave himself up for us in love. In Jesus' name. Amen.